0: Welcome to The Changemakers, where we delve into the lessons from life in the lockdown, from those who are living it, learning from it, and leading organisations through it. My guest today is Stephen Welton, who leads the UK's most active investor in growth companies, BGF. In just under 10 years, it's invested more than £2 billion from its base in Charing Cross's Watergate House, where James Bond creator Ian Fleming once walked the halls in his time at GCHQ, which was based there. Now to continue the link and the theme, I must tell you that a recent article compared Stephen to James Bond's M. So we want to find out today whether the world is not enough and will guests be left shaken, stirred, or even both. To tell us more, it's a great pleasure to welcome Stephen Welton.
1: Good afternoon, Michael. I'm glad to say that we've been watching a few Bond films, so a few to a kill the the other night, so at least I can remember the baddie in that one.
0: Max Zorin, who could forget him? I mean, an absolute classic of the Bond era. And of course, the great thing about BGF is that um, back in the day, GCHQ was, was headquartered there, was it not?
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, extraordinary. Our, we've got 14 offices across the UK, and our London office is uh, Watergate House, as you said. Uh, used to be where the River Thames actually came up. So what is now Embankment Gardens, where in days of old was water, and used to get the uh, the water taxis or the barges. And because it's around Westminster, I mean a lot of the the spooks and the spies have always been close to the seat of power. And there are many old buildings which have got a great heritage back to GCHQ or MI5 or MI6. And it just turned out that the Government School of um, Code and Ciphers, I think it was called started in Watergate House in uh, 1919. So I know you're very uh, financially literate, Michael, so you will know that that made it 100 years last year.
0: 100 years, even I can work that out.
1: <laughs> and that was uh, that was your first code to break, which you obviously <laughs> cracked. And we had a, a fantastic interaction with GCHQ, which is obviously the modern-day version of that service, no longer based in London but in Cheltenham. And to celebrate their 100th anniversary, they wanted to come back to the building. Uh, and that was obviously unbeknownst to us when we moved in, but we more than sort of tipped a nod to the heritage of the building. So we have restored it very much in a sort of 1930 style, and the rooms are named after all of the great folk of Bletchley Park and, of course, Alan Turing, which is where our boardroom was. Um, or is so when GCHQ decided to have their celebration and bring uh, a star cast to the building we were delighted to uh, to act as host and it's a it's a great link to the past and history is often a good indicator of what will come in the future
0: and of course star cast being Her Majesty the Queen who uh, came and had a look at the Enigma machine and all of the other good stuff created well maybe not created there but certainly has that.
1: Yeah, and uh, what was extraordinary when she was uh, giving her uh, address was that she has been uh, on the throne for a very, very long period of time. So over half of the lifetime of GCHQ, which is quite extraordinary. So her knowledge and the briefings that she will have received will be second to none.
0: And of course, you know, back in the day, that was all about breaking codes. Now you've got to break the code of business success, pick a few winners BGF, as the world 's most um, active investor in growth companies, give us a sense of the business and indeed the goals that you have with it now that you 're almost 10, ten years in
1: it 's always exciting to to look back to sort of look in the rearview mirror and uh, the world ten years ago uh, has some similarities to the current crisis that we 're in, but we started with the proverbial blank sheet of paper and, and a real sense of of mission and a purpose, which is quite simple. Could we create a new investment platform, a new investment business that was going to be relevant to a wide range of growing companies right across the UK, not just working in London or in Silicon Roundabout, but genuinely across the country, talking to entrepreneurs and families and founders in a way that they found helpful, because what we're trying to crack is the the nut of actually, how do you get more capital and more support into small growing companies? And for a very long period of time, I think entrepreneurs, other than maybe in the tech world, have been pretty um, skeptical and cautious of the city. And it's felt inaccessible, not here and not for us. So our objective back in 2010-11 was to create an investment business that could show the benefit of having an equity partner in your business to help you grow, to help make some of those tough decisions. And with a strong financial partner to grow a bigger business uh, more quickly than you could do on your own. And back at the beginning, that was pretty hard because we had no case studies. So it was a lot of rhetoric and a lot of aspiration. As we look back today, we've now backed over 300 companies. We're backing more than 50 companies a year and we've invested over 2 billion. So I think it's interesting now to look ahead on the back of what we've achieved. There is no doubt in our minds at all there is a huge opportunity in the UK to get behind entrepreneurs. And I think that's going to be an essential building block for the future again.
0: I mean, born in one crisis, the financial crisis, 10 years later, we're, fi- we're facing a, a very different crisis, I guess, in terms of this time, COVID-19. In terms of the ability of business to weather the storm, in terms of the UK as a, as a kind of, I guess, an enterprise hub, how much fit do you think it is at the moment?
1: I think we're we're clearly going to face a completely different set of challenges. But we've had challenges in the past. And it, you know that expression, be careful what you wish for. Uh, this must be two or three years ago, somebody was asking me the question, with the benefit of hindsight, what would you do differently in setting up BGF? And I sort of thought about that. And I think we've done a lot of things I'm very proud of. And I pondered on that question. And I thought, well, actually, had we been set up in 2008, that would have been even better because we would have mm-hmm. been well prepared for the financial crash. Now, as I say, careful what you wish for, we are now dealing with something that's not a financial crash, but is potentially far more significant in terms of the business impact. The difference is that BGF is now absolutely ready to not only carry on doing what we've done, but to do a lot more with the infrastructure that we've got and the capabilities that we've got. We need to find a way, and not just BGF, we need to find a way for investors to get behind entrepreneurs. And this really is uh, the darkest hour. We have to make sure that there is an optimistic and a viable way to recover.
0: What, um, what do you learn about yourself as a leader in a, in a moment like this, in terms of when you're facing something which you know is so far away from the phrase business as usual, as you could hope to get?
1: I, I think first and foremost, you learn what hopefully we never lose sight of, which is the power of a great team. Uh, We're all used to running businesses to be able to get people together in large forums and to address them as a group and hopefully communicate and convey key messages and get a sense of real esprit de corps and a sense of purpose and a clarity in terms of what you're trying to do. When you suddenly overnight move to everybody being in their own homes in different parts of the country... It really highlights the critical need for that communication and that sense of togetherness, which often we just take for granted because it physically happens every day. And I think I have been so impressed with the way in which everybody at BGF has responded to these very, very unusual circumstances and they have pooled together. So technology really Mm. does help. Not all of us were as au fait with, uh, with the joys of Zoom and Teams. We are now. We're all expert broadcasters now waiting for those lucrative film contracts to come in. But the ability on a Monday morning to talk to 180 people, in a way more intimately, because you can see people and when people are talking, they come up on screen, I think has been really powerful. And there are some... I think, lessons that we will take from lockdown that we want to carry through to what will be business as normal in mm. the future. So
0: I, I, I think was going to ask you that. A lot of people are talking about the fact that we may never really go back to a style of working, a style of business that we've been accustomed to, that this could be a real generational break. Do you, do you buy into that? Or yeah, think?
1: I, I think I do, because some of the taboos of the past uh, we're going to be really hard to crack. I mean, starting with the most obvious one, working from home. Now, uh, that's that's a nice acronym. I think a lot of people in the past will thought, well, you're not really working from home. You're having the day off or you're, you're doing something that's got nothing to do with work and we're paying you. That has completely changed. I mean, it's very clear that people not only can work from home, they're potentially working too hard from home and working very long hours from home. And I think the sense of having to sit at your desk, so being seen as being active, I think that is definitely changing. And that would be true for an older generation rather than a younger generation who may not have thought quite the same way. So measuring productivity is not the same as measuring attendance in an office. And I think that mindset has changed. And with that, I think we have some really exciting possibilities. So if you look at the objective that we have within business and within the investment industry to have more women. So why have we got so few female entrepreneurs? Why do we have so few female investors? And there are many different reasons for that, but one of them is working practices. So if you're going to go to a breakfast meeting, well, that may not be very convenient if you're taking your children to school. If you can have a breakfast meeting in and around a school trip because you're doing it by way of a video conference, I think historically that would have been frowned on. I don't think that will be the case going forward. So there are going to be ways to use technology without compromising on quality, without compromising on productivity or commitment. But I think people will now be comfortable to embrace rather than in the past slightly fearful of.
0: Obviously, the the country is now moving to a different chapter in its fight with the coronavirus. We've seen the huge efforts expanded on combating the, the medical crisis Of course, the economic crisis is something that the Prime Minister is going to turn to this Sunday. We're going to have much more clarity in terms of the reopening of of the UK economy, or we we certainly hope so. In terms of the what's next, how the UK economy opens up most effectively, what's your view in how that is most effectively done?
1: I think we need to move, and in my view, rapidly towards what's next. If you think about our reaction to this crisis, it has quite rightly had sort of two main prongs. First of all, to ensure that the health service does not collapse under the weight of demand. So the fact that we built all these Nightingale hospitals and they're not being fully utilized yet, I think is a great thing because it shows we have built the capacity. We will be able to deal with the demands, hopefully, that come on the NHS and the NHS will not uh, fall over as a result. That was a very clear and immediate and necessary step. And I think the the government should be commended for everything that they've done there. Sadly, that has obviously not stopped a significant loss of life. And that is one of the long-term consequences of this crisis. If you think from an economic standpoint, to achieve that slowdown in the famous curve, we had to stop economic activity overnight without preparation, which was incredibly brutal in terms of the way that has landed especially on businesses which are consumer-facing in the hospitality sector and the retail sector. And I think people have accepted that was something that had to be done at that stage. We now have to look ahead. And if we've been putting out fires by increasing capacity for the NHS, by ensuring that unemployment does not go up, and I think the furlough scheme has been very powerful, what comes next Because you can't keep putting out fires, you've actually got to rebuild for the future. So the economy is clearly contracting very rapidly. We have to ensure that it can recover. So I think our focus now should turn to how do we build back the economy. It is unlikely to be exactly as it was before because certain things are going to have changed and certain business models won't work. But there are other business models that can be accelerated, and the green agenda is an obvious one to look at. So for us. How are we going to invest in our future? Because just Mm. contracting and limiting the damage is the first part. The second part, and in my mind, the much more fundamental part for the sake of the whole economy and therefore the nation, which the prime minister will be addressing, I hope, is how do we recover and make sure that these are not going to be not just lost months, but lost years and lost decades?
0: Mm, I mean, and a lot of people are worried that this is such a tricky problem because, I mean, in, in some respects, the the lockdown is the hammer that falls. But of course, this has been compared much more to a dance where on the one hand, you've got the ever-present threat of a second flare-up against the needs of an economy that needs to find its way back into its rhythm. And that's going to take some some fancy footwork to continue the analogy.
1: Yeah, no, and in it's an incredibly tough position because there isn't a right answer um, and whatever decision is taken has consequences. But because you have difficult decisions, it uh, doesn't mean you can avoid them because not making a decision is equally a choice. And we cannot choose to stay in this period of stasis because the impact on the economy is dramatic. The impact on people's well-beings, on their social lives, their ability to interact, the ability to meet uh, relatives are going to have long-term impacts. And so I think the the choice for the government is how to unlock in a sensible way and to actually give people that direction and that sense of hope. And I think hope is a critical ingredient here. And we deal with entrepreneurs, and it's all about aspiration and the future. And we have to be positive, recognizing what is immediately in front of us is very concerning.
0: I mean, and of course, keeping going, that belief in getting through. I mean, how has the portfolio been doing in terms of living through COVID, in terms of your investments?
1: I have to say, remarkably well in the immediate aftermath. And that, I think, just highlights how entrepreneurs think. Uh, Entrepreneurs are good at making decisions, they're good at thinking on their feet. What we've seen in this first phase of lockdown is an absolute focus on preserving cash. So deferring uh, rent rates, deferring the taxman, using the furlough scheme to be able to try and cut down on some of your uh, direct costs. Some companies not paying their rent. So we've gone through, uh, and I think it's a pretty remarkable achievement, maintaining to date high levels of employment and companies really, really, preserving cash. And that's a good reaction to a crisis. You do whatever you can, pull whatever levers you can to try and alleviate the short-term problems. That, of course, is kicking the can, in this case, a very, very short way down the road, because all of these liabilities that have been deferred have only been deferred. All of the loan interruption schemes, as uh, we keep hearing, have to be repaid back they are not grants they are loans and so we will have to turn our attention to how do we actually recover the situation and that i think is the focus that we are really looking at how are you going to repay these loans how are you then going to raise the capital to grow when the economy starts to grow how do we avoid mass unemployment as a consequence when the furlough scheme ends
0: and i suppose that that also infers quite a high degree of interventionist government in terms of keeping that show on the road.
1: I mean, clearly, the government has had to intervene in unprecedented ways. Um, They're going to have to find ways to extract themselves, probably in unprecedented ways as well, because the strength of certainly the entrepreneurial economy where we focus our efforts is to encourage innovation to actually reward aspiration, to encourage people to take risk, And we've got to maintain that sense of opportunity because that's what creates innovation. And that is what is going to come up with undoubtedly many of the great inventions and companies of the future. So whether it's a British company that invents a vaccine for COVID or we completely retool the UK diagnostics industry. So we're prepared for the next pandemic and maybe that's not this virus, it's another virus. Those are real commercial opportunities, and the private sector is very, very well-versed to do that. So I think the collaboration between the public and the private is going to change. There's clearly been a shift caused by this crisis. We need to make sure that that equilibrium doesn't go too far and that we continue to find a way to promote private enterprise and wealth creation, which will clearly fund the investment in public services that everybody will want to see carrying on.
0: And I suppose these next tentative steps that we're going to take towards the easing of the lockdown are hugely important in terms of the morale of business to see whether they can win through once some element of some kind of normality starts to return, where you can trade again, you can do things differently. In terms of how the nation prepares its entrepreneurs to best win through. Have you got any thoughts in terms of what they need right now?
1: I mean, everybody will cry out for clarity. So when does lockdown end? When can I plan to actually get everybody working in the office? I think the reality is it's not going to be quite as binary as that. So we're going to have to navigate through inevitably slightly uncertain territories. What we are already seeing in some sectors is that they are adapting quickly to what does social distancing mean. So in the construction sector, if you're working outside, they have a long history of obviously health and safety regulations. Now you're adding in social distancing. And I think over the weeks ahead, you will start to see more businesses working out how do they achieve social distancing and how do they maintain the safety of their workforce, which is obviously the fundamental requirement for any employer. And in some industries, that's going to be easier. If you are a white-collar worker, as we are working remotely, it's possible to carry on doing your work. If it's a factory, it's not as easy. So factories will have to find different ways of organizing shift patterns, potentially having PPE in their um, factories. Restaurants is going to be harder. You can have a half-full restaurant, but you still need the full complement of kitchen staff and waiting staff. So a lot of people are not thinking about how to evolve their business models for a completely new environment. And I'm a big believer in the sort of entrepreneurial flair and finding a way around a problem. I have no doubt that there will be brand new businesses we've never thought of before that come out of a completely different way of working and thinking.
0: And this is what I was going to ask you by My final question on this was, we left 2019 with a, with a feeling that, you know, quite a sort of divisive period of the nation sort of arguing its way through Brexit, through... How the world was going to sort of see us, be, how things were going to change. Nobody, though, thinking to 2020, could have seen that this was going to happen in terms of the what happened next. But in terms of reasons to be positive, I mean, you, you sort of began that, you know, the end part of your answer there with, I think, quite an upbeat assessment of entrepreneurial endeavour. But in terms of, you know, our, our sort of onward journey into this decade, it, will this be a roaring twenties? The story of the entrepreneur in Britain in the 2020s.
1: Yeah, I'm, I absolutely believe that. I, I am an inveterate optimist and I deal with entrepreneurs. And I sort of give a suitable um, health warning. But if you think of the art of the possible, I mean, uh, not many people are mentioning the Brexit word anymore because we've moved on. And I think in terms of business, we can quickly move on. Uh, we were debating, well, how would you actually reduce the um, temperature on the, the planet? How are we going to slow that down? It's impossible. We've clearly showed nothing is impossible if you really turn your mind to it. This may be a fairly brutal way of addressing climate change. But I think if you go back to the industries of the future and the green environment is one of those. But if we think about future cities where are people going to work? Can you work remotely? Do we have the concentration in major conurbations that we've had historically? Do we need to keep building up transport and infrastructure to get people to cities? Or can people work in more local communities? That will have, I think, huge societal benefits, reconnecting people back to their communities. And entrepreneurs are 100% the people who will find the ways to actually achieve that and have no doubt. And I think our job as investors is to give people the benefit of the doubt where we can and to support some of these new business models.
0: Stephen, thank you very much. And that was Stephen Welton of BGF. And that's all we have time for for this week's edition of The Changemakers and a message there about reinventing the art of the possible. And in this next chapter of change, that reinvention is going to be absolutely crucial. We'll see you for the next edition of The Changemakers.